Would you take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 7, verses 11 through 12. By this point, we should almost have these verses memorized. But we're going to finish them off this morning. And as we, we come to verse 22 and... It shifts us into a new theme and new, introduces a new topic of Hebrews. We, we see that everything that we have been discussing the last several weeks comes to a crescendo point, in, in some ways in an epic fashion. And it brings us to a conclusion that I, I hope this morning leads us to a contemplation of the very nature of God. And what God has done for His people in sending His Son. And I'll tell you that this morning, our our text before us, it repeats many of the same things that we've heard numerous times since we've started in the book of Hebrews. But it does require us for a moment to focus on what the text of Scripture says which means that as we gather to hear the preaching of God's Word, as we gather as God's people to worship, let us rest for a moment together from the cares of this world. Let us set aside the things that bother us, the anxieties, the things that consume us, the things that we're going to automatically start thinking about once we say amen and walk out the door. Let's set those things aside for a moment and set our eyes upon Christ. And let's set our eyes upon the majesty and glory of God as He has revealed Himself to us in Scripture. And let us marvel at the accomplishment of salvation that we have in Christ. So let us hear the Word of God. Hebrews 7, verse 11. Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, For under it the people received the law. What further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar." For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priest. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. 
This is God's word, and may he bless the reading of it. Our particular verses that we'll be focusing in on this morning are verses 20 and 22. And we'll read these verses together from 11 to 22 because it's all forming one long argument, making many different points along the way of why Christ is a better priest. And there's several arguments that are being made through this. And we finally get to the final argument being made of why Christ is a better priest is because Christ is a priest by way of God's oath for him to be a priest. And so we see that right away in verse 20, and it was not without an oath. Now there's a connection here of verse 20 that we have to see related to verse 19, which we are told we have a better hope. Now, you remember, the book of Hebrews is about why everything in Christ is better. Christ is a better priest. Christ is a better, uh, uh, Christ is, is, is uh, a better revealer of God's word. Christ is better in all things. And so because of this, we have a better hope. And so our hope is a better hope because Christ is a better priest. Now, why do we have this? And why are we told this, that Christ is a better priest and this gives us a better hope? It's to help us. It's to show us that we have a greater confidence, to ensure a greater confidence, to have a greater assurance. It's to have a greater peace. And God does this by way of oath for these purposes. In other words, when you read these words, it was not without an oath we're seeing the introduction of something that is supposed to instill in our hearts assurance. It's supposed to instill in our hearts hope and confidence. In other words, this is written for your benefit and for your confidence that in Christ you have assurance. This is what separates Christ from the other priest. As his priesthood was sworn by oath, and you'll notice what it says in verse 20, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. So here's the thing, is Christ is priest by oath, the previous priests were not by oath. They were enacted into the priesthood in, in two different ways. It says that they were made such. So what does that word made such mean? It means that they became a priest, not with an oath. They went through an ordination process. They had to have certain physical and uh, marital stipulations that they had to meet. Uh, they had to have special clothing that they were supposed to wear. They had their duties outlined that God had given to them. But the, God did not call the previous priest, what we know as the Levitical priest, by way of an oath, but another way. It says this in Exodus 28, verse 1. Then bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him among the people of Israel to serve me as priests. Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ethamar. That statement says this is God chose the priest in the Old Testament by way of being appointed and then by way of being sons of Aaron. That's how God chose the priest. He made, he chose Levi, the tribe of Levi, and chose specifically Aaron, and he appoints them, and then 
priesthood continued by simply being born into it. Now, there's something we have to understand about that is when we see in the book of Hebrews that there's this argument that we have a new priesthood, we have to recognize that the previous priesthood was not just an arbitrary decision of God, but it was actually part of God's eternal plan to have a priesthood. It was not just some whim of God where he thinks, I think I'll choose the tribe of Levi to be my tribe of priests, and maybe I'll choose Aaron. He didn't just arbitrarily did that, do that. He did it for a purpose. It was God-ordained. It was sanctioned by God. So what you read in the Old Testament about the priesthood and the ceremonies and all of these things, God consecrated those things. God planned those things. They are holy, and they were for a purpose. And here's where the point we have to get to is they were for a purpose other than salvation. The giving of the law, the appointment of priests, the consecration of these things were for a purpose of something other than salvation because it was not by an oath but by birth, meaning it was for a period of time. As we learned in Sunday school this morning, it was to be a schoolmaster. That is, it was to lead us to Christ. It says those that were formally, which is a past action, this is how it was done. Priests were born into their duty. But it was not for salvation. They could not gain salvation by following a priest. They could not gain salvation by a priest doing all the right things and being a good priest. The whole entire purpose of the priesthood was to point to a greater priest that would one day come. And we see this in verse 21, but this one was made a priest with an oath. Now that that word but marks a contrast. It makes a difference. And this one, although it's not actually in the text, the original text, the, the words this one is speaking of Christ. This one, this Jesus, was made a priest. And and that word but is drawing a contrast. Jesus is different from the previous priests. And so when we look to Christ, we're not looking to something that was of the past. We're looking to something that has been brought in to the now. And specifically, it says he was made a priest. And so as Christ, eternally God, takes on human flesh, he's made a priest. You see this language of being made, of Jesus being made something other than what he eternally was in the book of Hebrews many times. In chapter 1, verse 4, it says, He having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is much more excellent than theirs. He becomes something. He was made something. In chapter 3, verse 2, it says, Who was faithful to him who appointed him. 
Jesus was appointed to something. He was made something. He had become something. In chapter 5 and verse 5, we read this. So also Christ did not exalt himself to become, be made a high priest, but was appointed by him. He was appointed. He was made. He was set aside as these things. And so that is all speaking of one significant event. Being made a priest. In taking on human flesh, we can say Jesus became something he wasn't before. He was God of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But then you get to John chapter 1, verse 14, and the Word, what? What's that word? Became flesh. He became something he wasn't before. So Jesus was always God of God, always the exact representation of God from all of eternity. He is always the eternally begotten Son of God, but he became man. He became and took on flesh. He became a priest, and he became a priest, as we see in this text, by oath. You think, okay, what's the big deal about an oath? That he becomes a priest by an oath. Why is this important to help us right now and live in 2023 that he was made a priest by oath? Well, we're told the importance of why God gives an oath in chapter 6 and verse 16 of Hebrews. We read this, For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. Now we looked at these verses. We know that whenever we want to validate something we say, we, we up it by saying, well, I swear, and then that makes it more truthful. That's just what we do as people. So in verse 17 of that same chapter of Hebrews 6, so when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. In other words, God swears by an oath that Christ is a priest, not because he has to do that, but we are told that Christ is a priest for our benefit. Why is that to our benefit? Because God's not required to give an oath. Whenever God speaks, whenever God says anything, it is truth, and it's an unassailable truth. God is not capable of lying. It would be outside of his nature, and it's impossible for God to ever act outside of his nature. He is who he is. He is always consistent with who he is. He gives us an oath not to up it for to, to, to validate what he says, he gives an oath to bring you and I comfort. Why would God do this? Why would he do this for our benefit? To give you assurance. That's why. 
to help ease our concerns and worries that we face in this life. That is why he gives us an oath. You know, when we begin to worry about our salvation, when we begin to get overwhelmed with things in this world, which that never happens to you, all right. When we do become overwhelmed, what we see here is because this was by oath, we just simply look to Christ and are reminded that Christ is our priest. Christ is our mediator according to God's oath. You don't have to worry. God does this by oath, not for his sake or not because he's not truthful. He does this for us. And so if you, dear Christian, ever struggle with the assurance of your salvation, if you ever struggle with whether God loves you, you reflect on two things. The nature of an oath and the nature of God, the one who gives the oath. So what is the nature of this oath? We see it in verse 21 where it says, the Lord has sworn. Now this is quoting Psalm 110, verse 4. And if you were to look at Psalm 110, you would notice the word Lord is all capital, which it means it's a reference to Yahweh, which is God's holy name. And Yahweh simply means the self-existence. It is to say, God says, I am. It's his covenant-keeping name. It's the name that God chooses to reveal himself to his people. It says, the Lord, Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, who's dependent upon no one, swears. Now, to swear... And that word swear there, or to sworn, the Lord has sworn, it, it, it involves calling to witness someone else, and if the, if the promise that is given is broken, it includes penalty or punishment for the failure to keep it. So God, when He has sworn has sworn by himself. Now, for a second, just remember who God is. Why do we have to have, we, if we swear, that ups things up? Because we know that we're liars. With humans, this idea of swearing by myself, if I was called to stand on the testimony on trial and I'm standing before people and I swear by myself, it falls short, doesn't it? As verifying truth. If I was going to witness for myself, you could doubt me. You could doubt that I was telling the truth, which is why God's revealed law and really the law of nature tells us that in order to plead a case, it requires witnesses because you just don't trust one person when they swear by themselves, do you? Because again, people lie. We seek after our own self-preservation at the expense of truth. In fact, people will lie for self-preservation. People will lie over the, the most silly things. That way, they're not embarrassed by something. 
People will lie over the silliest things. And so we automatically know that if someone were to say, well, I swear by myself, that, that does, that's not good enough. Well, there's, there's something different about God. There's something different about God. God is in no danger of self-preservation. God has no such temptation before him to lie so that he might gain something for it. God is holy. God is pure. God is without defect. God is his own perfections. There is no higher witness that God can bring to the witness stand on behalf of his oath. The highest that God could appeal is himself. Unless we think that there's something out there higher than God, which would then mean that would be God. So for God to have sworn, he swears by himself. There is no higher authority to which he can appeal. Now if we dismiss this, for a second, then we have cast upon God the possibility that he could lie. Now, remember this. This is in connection with your salvation. If you are saved and you say or begin to think, well, I couldn't really be saved. God couldn't keep me. God couldn't, couldn't hold my salvation in his hand. We would, we would then have to say God lied. Because he swore that Christ would be a priest that would forever mediate on our behalf. To swear by himself is not for God to double down for his sake or bolstering his witness. God swears by an oath for you. If we dismiss this and we categorically reject what the Bible reveals about God and the very nature of God, which is this. Notice what the text says, and will not change his mind. God does not change his mind. God will not change his mind. And I will even say, and go as far as to say, it's impossible for God to change his mind. Malachi chapter 3, verse 6 says this, very clearly, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Why were they assured that they would not be consumed by God's wrath? Because God does not change his mind. Now, why would I say it's impossible for God to change his mind? Because changing the mind comes with the idea of regret. The idea of changing means that God is mutable rather than immutable. I want to I want to hang on this for a second and if you would turn over to 1 Samuel. I want to deal with for a second a difficult and complex idea about God changing his mind. 1 Samuel chapter 15 verse 11. We want to hear the full counsel of God's Word and understand this. I know that as you read through your Bibles, you come across these verses, 
and they should be unsettling to you. So here's the question as we begin to look at these verses. How do we understand passages that teach us God changed his mind? Because what did we just read in Malachi? That God does not change his mind. What does it say in Hebrews? God does not change his mind. So why do we read passages every now and then that say exactly the opposite of what other scriptures say? So 1 Samuel chapter 15 verse 11 says this, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry and he cried to the Lord all night. And so what what does this text say? It very clearly tells us that God regretted doing something, that God changed his mind. But the other passages say that God doesn't. Well, go over to verse 31 of 1 Samuel 15. Notice a very clear statement. Then he said, making sure I have the right verse, sorry, excuse me. What we see here, and I've written down the wrong passage, Drives me crazy when I do that. You just give me a second. This is embarrassing. Verse 29. Thank you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Now, what did you see in verse 11? God said, I regret that I have made Saul king. And what does it say in verse 29? God's not like man and has regret. And then if you go over just a couple of more verses in verse 35, the final part of verse 35, it says, And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. So what do we make of this? Hebrews says God will not change his mind, and I think that that's supposed to give us comfort that God is immutable. We see in 1 Samuel, it says, God changed his mind about Saul. And we go over a few more verses, and what do we read? God's not like man and never changes his mind. You go over a couple of more verses, and then it says, God changed his mind and regretted that he had made Saul king. What do we make of all of these verses? Let me just ask you a couple of questions. Does the Bible claim to be written by God? Yeah. Does the Bible itself claim perfection? So the interpretive issues that we face here then are not on God's part or because of unclarity of God. It's because of us, right? We have to start with that basic premise. But we have to recognize something is this, is if God were to change, it would mean one of two things. And this is where we, this is where we have to really focus. It means one of two things if God changed. He's devolving or he's evolving. Change always means either a devolving or an evolving of something. Change is always getting better or getting worse. 
You, you, you think about it in the human body. A child comes and is able to all of a sudden crawl. They're evolving, if you will. They're getting better. They're adapting to their surroundings. And then eventually they're able to walk. And then they're able to run. And then they get into their 20s where they hit their peak of what they're able to do. And then it starts to go downhill. Change always means getting better or getting worse. That's what it always means. It has to be. So if we say then that God can change, we have to ask the question, is He changing for the better or is He changing for the worst? If God were changing for the better, that means that He wasn't already perfect. And if God was changing and getting worse, that means He's now no longer Perfect. If God was affected by Saul and was caught off by guard when he sinned, then God's knowledge of Saul and what he would do was not based upon his eternal perfect knowledge of all things that comes from his eternal perfect plan, but his knowledge would rather be upon man. God would not be perfect. He's just waiting to see how things happen. God could not reveal his name then as Yahweh, could he? Which means that he's self-existent. So what does it mean when we see in statements in Scripture where God changed his mind or, or God regretted? Well, his external plans, his, his outward plans as we experience them change. You know, it's interesting with Saul, in the case of Saul, we're told that if he, had been, if he had been obedient, he could have had an eternal kingdom, but because he sinned, it didn't happen. However, we're also told hundreds of years prior to the, the giving of Saul uh, the kingdom, we're told that the kingdom will not be given to the tribe of Benjamin, of which Saul was a tribe of Benjamin we are told that the kingship would come to the tribe of Judah. In other words, God's plan as we experience things in our lives, affect, we, we experience change. But in terms of God's eternal and internal plan of who God is, it never, ever changes. What we experience in life, does things change? All the time. But with God, nothing ever changes. He is immutable. He cannot change. Now, why is this important? Why should we go to this deep end of thinking of things? Why should we wrestle through this idea that God does not change? Well, the first reason is this is because very simply Scripture presents it. We looked in the Old Testament in two different places. We see it in the New Testament, this fact that God does not change. So apparently God wants us to know that He doesn't change. Our text makes the entire argument based upon this one point God does not change. God does not have regret. So we're supposed to wrestle with this. 
This is not just something that medieval scholastic monks are supposed to sit around and debate over. This is something plainly written in God's Word to help us. Let me ask you a question. Why do we experience stress? Why do, why do you experience stress, anxiety? Why do you have worry? I think it's often because we don't reflect on who God is or we forget who God is. Or maybe we've never sat to think about the very nature of God. In the book of Hebrews, they were thinking about returning back to a works-based system, a works-based salvation where they could gain salvation by merit. And so Paul tells them and gives them this information because they were obviously not thinking about whom? We're thinking about God. They weren't thinking about the nature of God. They were not thinking about Christ. They were not thinking about what they had received in Christ. The Hebrews, to whom this letter was written, they were getting stressed out about the changing nature of the world. They were facing persecution. They were facing all sorts of, not only persecution physically, but economic sanctions placed upon them. They were facing the anxieties and stresses of the world. And these Hebrews, they had to raise kids, they had to get older, they had to have jobs, they had to have all the same things that we have. And they begin to stress out, they begin to get worried, they get to begin to come, become a, uh, consumed by anxieties of this life. And they say... Maybe we should go back to earning our salvation. Because then I'm in control of it. And what does Paul tell them? You need to think about the nature of God. God does not change. You have been given a great high priest in Christ. And it's been given by an oath. And what is that oath? Notice it is. You are a priest Forever. That's speaking of Christ. Whereas everything else changes, where we experience change in all of these things, here's what you take to the bank, and it's this. God has sworn, God will not change His mind. Chapter 6, God will not lie. Christ is a priest forever for you. So if you're a Christian, if you have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, when you read, you're a priest forever, you think of it this way, Jesus is a priest forever on your behalf. And God cannot change. God has sworn this by an oath. He will not lie about that. So it doesn't matter whatever else happens in the world, you have this one sure thing and that is this, is that Christ is a priest forever. You see this idea that Christ will receive an everlasting and eternal priesthood, a kingdom. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 14, it says this, And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. 
His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. In other words, if you are in Christ this morning, you are forever secured in His kingdom. When the birth of Christ was foretold, they were given this prophecy in Luke chapter 1, verse 33, and He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of His kingdom there will be no end. His kingdom is forever. His priesthood is eternal. It is forever. His priesthood is forever, and we do not have to doubt that. Romans chapter 6 and verse 9 just simply says, We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Christ accomplished his priestly duty and was vindicated in his resurrection to never die again. Now it's interesting. The author quotes Psalm 110, and so I think it's important we look at Psalm 110. Psalm 110 begins in verse 1, says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That's Psalm 110, verse 1. Now notice what it says. If you look at the word Lord, it's all capitals. Yahweh says to my Lord. This was a a, a psalm of David. David is calling someone his Lord, and he says, the Lord says to my Lord. And so let me break this down very simply. This is a picture of the Father speaking to the Son. So what this psalm reveals to us in which we find this promise of a forever priest, is that the Father is speaking to the Son. And so this is revealing something that's really incomprehensible because we see a conversation taking place between the Father and the Son. But we have to ask this question, is God eternal? Yes. That means that what we're reading is just simply a poetic description of something that took place. Eternally. In other words, what we read in Psalm 110, verse 1, is the eternal plan of God. It wasn't as if God in time said these things, because God is outside of time. What we're reading is God's eternal plan. So, now connect this to the priesthood of Christ. If you are in Christ, it was part of God's eternal plan. What do we know about God's eternal plan? Will it ever change? Praise God. Praise Him. The plan of God in all things is from eternity, but this is referring to our salvation. This is referring to Christ's priesthood. And this is the wonderful fact about it is this, God's eternal plan is not based upon human action. 
God's eternal plan is not based upon how good we are, but rather God's eternal plan is based upon Him and His good pleasure to send His Son to be a priest to die on behalf of His people. So your salvation entirely rests on God's good pleasure. Therefore, it's absolutely certain. You cannot change God's plan. You cannot alter God's plan. You cannot throw God off course. Why would we stress or allow stress of a changing world to weigh us down? We have an unchanging God who has an eternal plan, and that eternal plan cannot be altered or affected by us, which then leads to the result of the oath in verse 22. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. This is the introduction of something radically different. If you look at the the structure of the Bible, the structure of the Bible comes through the revelation of covenants. The Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant. And then, in the New Testament, we see a radically new covenant, the new covenant. And it says that Jesus is the guarantor of that. Some translations just simply say the guarantee or the surety. If you have an older version of the King James Version, it says Christ is the surety. That's a law term. And it's, uh, it simply means one that enters into a bond for someone else, and that a person puts themselves in under the obligation of taking someone else's debt. That's what it means for him to be a guarantee, is that he enters into the obligation of taking someone else's debt. The Webster's Dictionary from 1828 defines it this way. He undertook to make atonement for the sins of men and thus prepare the way to deliver them from the punishment to which they had rendered themselves liable. That was in the Webster's Dictionary, by the way, in 1828. How have our dictionaries changed today? Christ, in order to be the guarantee, puts himself as the very bond of the covenant transaction. And so Christ's priesthood deals with those things that are guaranteed, things that are certain, things that are sure. And he it results in a, a better covenant. Now, to say better doesn't mean the old covenant was bad. It's just simply to say this one is better. This one is markedly different. This one is new. The other ones were insufficient, but only in Christ do we have sufficiency. So there's a few things I want us to, to see here. The first thing is that this ought to fill our hearts with stability. As the psalmist continually calls God our rock, our fortress, our refuge, we live in tumultuous times. I think of the song, the interest rates are up, the stock market's down. You only get mugged if you go downtown. That's the world we live in, right? 
where everything's changing, everything's flux and flux. But the great reminder we have here is that our God is our rock, our foundation, our refuge, our great fortress to which we find security, stability. So our salvation rests not in ourselves, but only in what has been accomplished. George Whitfield, the great preacher of the Great Awakening, says, The covenant of grace is not built upon the faithfulness of a poor, fallible, changeable creature, but upon the never-failing faithfulness of an unchangeable God. You can have no security in life except the security that one day you will die. And so we are told something radically different is available to the Christian, that you can have an absolute security, and it's because it's not based on anything that we experience, but based upon God and His eternal, immutable plan. And there's something else wonderful about this. There's no successor to Christ's priesthood. Christ is not going to be replaced. No one else is coming in to finish what was left undone. There's no one else we can look to, no other means. It is in Christ and Christ alone. So why would we look anywhere else for comfort in this life other than Christ? And there's a final thing. This ought to lead us to worship. See the mercy of God, how accommodating He is. Yes, He sent His Son to pay the penalty for those who would place their faith in Him, but He even goes so far to remind us that our salvation is based upon an oath that He Himself gives, and Christ is the bond of that oath. And then He even tells us who He is. He is the immutable, unchanging God. You see, the doctrine of the priesthood of Christ ought to lead us to worship, to awe, and reverence towards our great God in heaven, who would send His Son to pay the penalty for our sins. We've gathered this morning to worship Him, haven't we? And His Word reveals who He is to lead us in that worship. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, our great priest, our king, our prophet. We thank you for the rich salvation that we have in him and in him alone. We praise you that this is not by works, but it is by grace through faith that we are saved. For we know our own conscience testifies against us that we fall short And so we praise you that in Christ we have a true and perfect salvation that is eternal and cannot be affected. We pray that you would apply these truths to our hearts, that they would give us stability, they would give us security, and that they would lead us to worship. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.